You know, the Bible makes a big deal about knowing God. Big deal. There are dozens and dozens of references. Old Testament, New Testament, all the books about knowing God. And so that's something we've got to pay attention to. When something is emphasized in Scripture, it's something that's really important and something that we need to, to take a look at. I was thinking about this because 25 years ago, it was my single-minded OCD obsession. <laughs> single-minded effort to know God. I wanted to know God. I had gotten to the edge of a precipice in my life, and I needed to know God. I'd just run out of everything. I'd run out of my own meaning and purpose and, and ability to do things. I didn't know it, but I was at the first step. You know, didn't actually admit that I was powerless, but I knew that I was, and I knew that there needed to be a different turn in life. But being the way I am, and I'm not going to accept all the blame, being the way that Western culture is, and even the way that Western Christianity has been for the last 500 years, we think about knowing God in a particular way. We think about knowing God in terms of data. We think about knowing God in terms of theology. We think about knowing God in some intellectual way. As if our minds could hold enough of the divine essence that we would just be able to live life in a risk-free way, that we can make decisions without having to make all those pesky mistakes and go into all those ditches that we go into. And this is what I was after. I was studying everything that I could get my hands on. I was in a pastoral training program at the church I was in, and I was studying, I was talking to other pastors and priests, and I was just trying to absorb as much data as I possibly could. And you have to think about this. This was in the 90s, so this is the run-up to Y2K, right? Any of you old enough to remember the run-up to Y2K, you know, X-Files and all that apocalyptic stuff that was going on because everybody thought the turn of the millennium was going to be some kind of really big, crazy deal. And so at that time, with all of that going on, you know, with Prince singing, we're going to party like it's 1999. What is this anyway? Does anybody really dance? Like, where did that come from? I don't get it. We were all there. We were in this mindset. There was this sense of urgency. There was this sense of something coming. And I remember I was totally into um, one of the uh, prophetic type uh, of teachers who was talking about that computer glitch that was supposed to happen at Y2K because they only had two digits and, and 2000 was going to throw everything off and everything was going to go into turmoil. And so I was all into that and, you know, trying to thinking, I don't know how much food I actually stored in the garage, but I was thinking about it. You know, do we do this? What do we do? How does this work? You know, and then here comes 2000, New Year's Day, and we're all hunkering down, looking out the window, waiting for, and nothing happens. You know, I think that was my first big wake-up call, that I was wasting a lot of time trying to gather information, trying to figure out Bible codes and all of this prophetic stuff, and trying to come up with some sort of information that would give me a risk-free existence in life and with God. And it was at that point that I really started to let go of this notion of knowledge, especially knowledge of God being all up here. That there was something that I had to move into, and a different kind of knowing. Now, now the interesting thing was, for that 10-year period, you know, during the 90s, I was also studying contemplative thought. I was studying Thomas Merton, and I was studying the Desert Fathers, and I was studying all these people. And so I knew that there was a different kind of knowing, but I wasn't living there. I wasn't leaning into that. I was still relying on my understanding of knowing. And so when this finally kind of came crashing down, when I started to get the sense that the emperor had no clothes, 
in this intellectual way, then this other kind of knowing that was building in me started to take to the fore and it started to become more and more important to me. And we finally, I finally began letting go of the death grip, I guess, that I had on needing to understand things, this idea of knowing as thought. And I guess the, the question that we should be asking ourselves right now is, why is knowing God so important? Why is it emphasized so much in the Bible? And how can we understand this knowing in a way that's actually going to take us where we really want to go? Now, this is one of the rare instances where Jesus actually gives us a straight answer. Amazing. Because usually when you ask Jesus a question, what does he do? He asks you a question back. Or he tells you a story. Or he comes up with a complete non sequitur because he realizes your quest for knowledge in the way that you're looking for it is your problem. The answer to the question is going to get you nowhere, but if you can break that train of thought. And so, in John 17, and to kind of set the stage a little bit, if you're not familiar with John 17, the Last Supper in John lasts five chapters. (laughs) It's a long affair. It's from chapter 13 to chapter 17. It's all in the context of the upper room, all in the context of the Last Supper. And in this last chapter of of the story of the Lord's Supper, Last Supper in John before he goes out and goes to the garden and and, uh, his arrest. It's a prayer. The entire chapter is a prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father, but he's praying on our behalf. He's praying for the unity. He's praying for the connection that happens. And right at the beginning of this prayer, at verse 3, he says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let that line sink in for a second. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We need to break this down a little bit. Because once again, we understand eternal life in a very different way than an Aramaic speaker. And if you're not familiar with that term, Aramaic was the language that most scholars believe Jesus spoke. It was the street language of, of Judea and the Galilee in the first century. Even though Hebrew was still an ecclesiastical language, still spoken in the temple, Aramaic was the language of the people. And so especially in the Galilee, in the backwater, Aramaic would have been the language that Jesus would use to address the people. And so an Aramaic speaker or Hebrew speaker thinking about eternal life is going to come out differently. When we think about eternal life, I mean, what do you think of eternal life is? It's life that goes on forever. And it's life that most of us think begins at death and takes the afterlife into eternity. Eternal life, life that continues after this one. The interesting thing about eternal, the word eternal in Aramaic is Alma. It's also the word for world. World and eternal, same word. Okay, what's going on here? Well, if you really look at what Alma means, it means era, it means age, or it means generation. And so when you apply that to the world, it has to do with the generations being produced, an endless production of generation after generation, of endless diversity that is blanketing the globe. And so the Jews looked at their world that way, as Alma, as never-ending diversity, never-ending generation and production of life. And that also had to do with the idea of eternal. 
See how it connects? Never-ending generations, things that become new, new diversity, newness, freshness, constantly changing. That's how they saw their world, and that's how they understood eternity. And since the Jews really didn't have any set doctrine for the afterlife and didn't point to the afterlife at all, their whole focus was on this life. What they mean by eternal life, when they say Hayye da Alma, life eternal, life that is eternal, they're talking about life here and now that is constantly new, refreshed, exciting, abundant, absorbing, surprising, all of that, never boring, never stale, never static. This life right here, like that. That's what they mean by eternal life. Now, they knew that death wasn't the end of human existence, but that's what they're not talking about. You're not talking about that here. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus is asked. And he answers, he didn't answer it then, he told the man what to do, but here, eternal life is knowing God. Do you see how that works? Knowing God is having the life that is always new, always changing with endless diversity, always showing us new things, never pinned down to one thing, but always moving, blowing through like the Spirit itself. This Haye de Alma is knowing God, and it's knowing Jesus as well. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. If we're going to know God, we're going to know Jesus. If we're going to know Jesus, we're going to know God, right? How does Jesus reflect this God? He calls it glorifying. I glorified you on the earth. And there's another name we don't understand. Glorifying means to bring praise or to bring honor to somebody or something. How do you do that with the unseen God? What do you give to the God who has everything? I guess you could look at it that way. Well, the one thing that we have that we can always bring is ourselves. We bring ourselves to God. Have you ever heard that uh, flattery is a sin- imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? Glorifying God is reflecting who he is. It is literally living as he would live. That brings honor. That brings glory to God because we're bringing ourselves as living sacrifices, as Paul would say. This is what Jesus says he did. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you set me to do. See? He did exactly what the Father would have done and did do in him. And he reflected who the Father was to the rest of us. And so, take a look at that little quote right underneath from Albert Nolan, who is a Catholic priest, a Dominican He wrote a book back in the 70s called Jesus Before Christianity. And in that, this little quote, we cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. Get that? We can't deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. (laughs) How is this true? Is this true? You know? We know the nature of God through the experience of Jesus. God is unseen. How can we really know his attributes? Scripture? Okay, but how did the scripture writers know the attributes of God? See, Jesus is what God looks like in human form. The choices he made, the relationships he had, the way that he lived his life. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To know that way of living is to know the God who stands behind that way of living. 
If we just imagine the unseen God, we imagine a lot of different things. Why do you think God shows up like a genocidal maniac in the Old Testament at times? Why is he vengeful? Why is he wrathful? Why does he look like a petulant child sometimes and changing? The people portrayed God in their image in many ways. They understood him through the lens of their culture because they didn't have anything concrete. And they were barred from making anything concrete about their God. But here comes Jesus on the scene and he's showing us exactly who this father is. This is the beautiful thing. So now we have something concrete. We have a person that we can relate to. And we can begin to know something about God beyond just what data we can gather through scripture, through theology, or even through physical processes in life. And this is where he's going with this. So how are we going to know Jesus then? If we're going to know Jesus in order to know God, how are we going to know Jesus? Is again through scripture, through theology. Jesus knew the Father by glorifying him, by reflecting him, by living as he lived. So that means we're supposed to do religious works and do good deeds in order to live like Jesus so that we can know the Father more. You know? This is a question that we have to answer ourselves. But then if you take a look right underneath at Hosea 6.6, 6, this is the Lord speaking through Hosea. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's talking about, no, it's not about religious works. It's something deeper. There's a different way of knowing God. And I skipped Micah, poor Micah up there, also at uh, chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, God has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. In other words, to glorify him, to reflect him. Okay, So there is a living out of knowledge that is separate from and different than this intellectual knowledge and different than just doing good works. Finally, look at Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so beyond just the religious works, there are all these other works done in community, all these other works done with the apparent power of God behind them. And yet there is still this separation. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That word lawlessness, if you look it up in an Aramaic lexicon, you know what the first definition is? A child. And the next one, a suckling infant. And then by root, there is a cult. And so what in the world is going It also means lawless. It can mean wicked. It can be iniquity. What in the world is the connection there? What Jesus is literally saying, these people, even though they were doing all of these things and moving out in this apparent religious power, they're still too unformed 
to really be able to move into true knowledge of God, to understand the intent behind the action. Maybe they're doing these things because they're spectacular. Maybe they're doing these things because it gives them power. Who knows what the motives are or what the attraction is, but they are still too immature, still too unformed, like a child, like a suckling infant, to be able to move into the kind of knowledge that brings this eternal life, that is this life that is always new, always there. So here we are trying to figure this thing out, you know, because these people were probably not breaking the law per se, but they weren't getting it. They weren't getting to where this actually goes. You know, as long as we think that we can't know God, as long as we think that something is attainable, that can bring us into this knowledge of God, we're always going to be banging a head against the wall. We're always going to be knocking on doors that won't open. And so here we are. How are we going to understand this? How are we going to understand what Jesus is talking about? Here's where language comes to the rescue. The word for knowing, the word to know in Hebrew is yada. And yada, actually, if you go back to the roots of the word, is the word for hand. So for a Hebrew, to know something is to be handling it, to handle it long with familiarity. Long familiarity, this closeness, this muscle memory is what the Jews are talking about when they talk about a knowing. We have a word for that too in English, and the word is intimacy. Intimacy is a long closeness or familiarity. It can also move into an emotional affinity or feeling of affection and a feeling of emotional closeness, but it really has to do with this long association into the very details of life. That's what we're talking about here. And to hammer home this point even further, both yada and intimacy or intimate are euphemisms for sexual relations. And here's where I always get myself into trouble here, you know, talking this way. And maybe you might think it's not appropriate at church, but you know what? If we're going to talk about God and we're going to talk about our relationship with God, all we can do is use analogy. We can't talk about these things directly. And so we're trying to come up with something in human experience that is like this spiritual experience that we can have with God. And the most intense intimacy, the most intense yada we know is this connection, this physical connection that we call lovemaking. Now, it's a poor substitute for what's really there, but it's the best we can do. And so you see... What is the Song of Songs about but analogy, an extended metaphor of intimacy in terms of human relations? And all the great mystics, the ones who really have come the furthest in completely experiencing and knowing God, always move to some sort of imagery that is along these lines because the intensity is what they're trying to use as an analogy for what it feels like, what it is like when we move this far into really knowing God. It's the best that we can do in words, right? Obviously, relationship with God is not sexual, but it has an intensity. It has a feeling that is something like that. So what is it? What is intimacy with God? How is it experienced? And how do we know when we have it? Those are three basic questions that we want to ask because if we're really going to try to move into intimacy with God, move into knowing God, how do we do it? What is this thing all about? Can we use our experiences of intimacy in human relations 
to try to get to an understanding of what intimacy with God actually looks like. And of course we can. It may not seem so at first, even though the analogy is imperfect, why would we experience our relationship with other people in terms of intimacy similar to what we do with God? And it's because we're the constant. We are always going to experience intimacy, whether it's physical or spiritual, through our humanity. There's no other way we can do it as long as we're sitting inside these skin suits, as long as we're human beings. We're going to have to experience things through our humanity. And so we can use this. How is human intimacy experienced. And I was looking at this, and I found an article by a clinician, um, LMFT, Licensed Marriage Family Therapist, who was talking about stages of intimacy. Have you heard about the stages of grief? Heard about those? There's five of them, right? So you've got denial, you've got anger, you've got depression, you've got bargaining, and then finally you've got acceptance. But it's understood that you don't go neatly through the stages in order. You know, and then you're done and you're at acceptance and everything is fine. You know, you might skip over one, you circle back, and it's a messy process. But at some point within the grieving process, you probably hit those five. You know, maybe you don't bargain as much, but you really get angry. What the interesting thing was that this clinician was bringing up was that she believes that there are five stages to intimacy that mirror the stages of grief. And she was trying to put a flow together for people to understand in terms of their relationships, especially their significant other relationships, what do they look like? What does the flow of intimacy look like? And I have it down here on your bulletin if you want to take a look. So interpersonally, her five stages are infatuation, landing, burying, resurfacing, and then finally love. Okay? So all of this These stages of intimacy are driving toward love. Let me just read you some of the uh, explanations so we can start to get a sense, because this is not absolute, but it's not bad. Infatuation. She has a couple of quotes here. Oh my God, I just met the love of my life. He is perfect. I want to marry him. I can't believe we have so much in common. I can't wait to see her again. You know, so all that feeling of infatuation Infatuation makes your dopamine levels soar, producing a full-body euphoria that brain scan studies show can be 95% the same as the brain on heroin. Did you know that? (laughs) Our infatuation, going into that state of being in love, is doing the same thing chemically that opiates do. That's why it feels so good. That's why we want it. That's why we'll go serially from relationship to relationship just so we can reproduce the infatuation period stage just like a a junkie with a drug. Your brain cannot biologically maintain the high of infatuation. You will fry. The infatuation will ebb and flow at different points. Then the negotiation between security and autonomy, we talk about it between security and freedom, that lifelong struggle crawls in and we begin to land. Okay, so you go through the infatuation. The body can't maintain that. It has to drop down to a lower level. And then you land. The landing from that fantastic flight can feel scary as we see things a lot more clearly. It's something along the lines of, and here's a quote that I want you to remember, the day you wake up and say you have married the wrong person is the day your marriage truly begins. What do you think about that? Put that on your fridge and think about it for a while. The day you wake up and say you married the wrong person is the day your marriage 
truly begins. It means that this is the day where the veil of infatuation lifts and the 2020 vision of everyday living comes in. Wow, she is neurotic. Oh my God, he tells the worst jokes. I didn't think about him at all yesterday. I hope we're okay. Any of these sound familiar? The landing can feel light and sweet or rocky, but eventually the clock strikes midnight and Cinderella must run home before the stagecoach becomes a pumpkin and her dress returns to rags. This is the landing. Falling out of, not love necessarily, we would say we're falling out of love, but falling out of infatuation, out of the high. Third step, burying This stage happens when all the to-do lists of life come toppling into the relationship, all of the details. Before you know it, conversations focus on things like who's doing the laundry, your boss, or the crazy mother-in-law. During the burying stage, other things like, oh, life, begin to encroach on your beautiful oasis of a relationship. Burying is not always bad. It's a sign that the relationship is real and weaves into your everyday experience and existence. The important thing to remember here is to unbury yourselves. Do something that allows real life to take a break and intimacy to resurface, bringing us to the next stage, which is resurfacing. Resurfacing is the stage where you turn to your partner and say to yourself, wow, I forgot how stunning she is, or I love him so much. Resurfacing is a relationship resolution. She is a mixed bag, but so am I. He sits on the toilet for an hour reading comics but I pluck my chin hairs. You start thinking, thing, thinking things like, I can't wait for our next date, or I can't believe I have such a sweet person in my life who always has my back. A massive problem that you two have resolved, a great date, almost losing the other person, or good couples therapy can all trigger resurfacing, coming out of that burying stage where you're just covered over with all of the mundane details. Anything can jolt us awake, a death in the family, or even a birth. And that finally takes us to love. This is what it's really all about, right? The part where we look across the dinner table, fight over the remote, or go on a great trip to Chinatown and think, I have it really good, I'm blessed, or I love him or her more than I ever could imagine. True love blossoms around year five. The rest is a rotation, sometimes rapid, sometimes slow, of the other stages. So, I don't know if you all related to any of that, but if you've been in a relationship more than five years, you probably have related to some or all. And this doesn't just have to be with a marital relationship or a significant other relationship. This could be with close friends as well. It can be with anything, anyone with whom we become this close, this intimate. We go through these stages. What I want to do now is compare this to the spiritual stages of intimacy because I think they're all there. The first stage, the ancients called it consolation, and they contrasted it with desolation. We might call it first fervor. We might call it that conversion period, a honeymoon period. When we first move into relationship with God, we're first converted to the faith, you know, and we are just on a pink cloud. We are just going crazy. We're probably really obnoxious, just like people in love are really obnoxious, you know, But we're on that cloud, we're on that high. And then it ends. Then we move back down to a more normal place in life. This is called the desolation. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. And this is where we desperately think that something is wrong. We've done something wrong. God has left us. Whatever happened, 
And we're freaking out and we're panicking and we're trying to get back that first fervor. We're trying to get back that emotional high. But there's also the temptation or the trial. We've moved into the desolation period. We've moved into the dark night. The temptation is to just go off the rails. I'm not doing anything right anyway. God is not with me anymore. And so the temptation to get sucked back into the daily routines of life, to let go of the practices and the things that you were doing that brought you into first fervor in the first place, kind of go by the wayside. But then there can be the restoration. There can be the revival. And it can be triggered by so many different things that bring us back into a felt connection with God. And as we go through this cycle, if we do go through this cycle and through these stages, where we end up finally is trust. Trust is where we need to be. Culturally, you know, when you think about it, we only think usually about ecstasy in terms of the first stages We think about intimacy in terms of the first flush of new love. We think about intimacy in terms of this felt emotional experience with our God, encounters with God. And so when things move out of that focus, then we think that we've lost intimacy. But that's not the case. That's not true. We We think of intimacy in terms of the emotional excitement, the ecstatic moments. But there is a different way of looking at this, that the ancients of our faith have always known and tried to teach as well. And I have a, I just want to read you a short passage. This is from a book called The In the Spirit of Happiness and it was written by monks that are cloistered in New York uh, in a monastery called New Skeet. And they are um, Eastern Orthodox, interestingly. But they write about this and I think it's, it's going to be really appropriate for what we're trying to do here. This is a newcomer to the monastery, or an idealized newcomer, speaking. And he's talking about his first fervor when he first got to the monastery. and Everything was new. It just blew away all his other spiritual experiences, and he was so excited about everything. And he says, instead of the fragmented existence I had wrestled with in the world outside, here, everything harmonized effortlessly. As I floated through those first months, I couldn't help thinking I was finally on the way to sanctity, a new creature absolved of the aimlessness of a former existence. But soon enough this grace period passed, and almost without realizing it, I discovered myself in a new phase, one pruned of many of the sensuous and mental spiritual comforts I had so, until so recently come to enjoy. I'm not certain how long it took for them to dry up, maybe six months, maybe longer, but gradually everything became different, more mundane. Nothing had changed, yet everything had changed. In other words, he landed, right? He landed out of that spiritual high. When I complained to Father Lawrence about this, he looked at me for a moment and then said, this is very good. (laughs) What do you mean? I snapped. Did he catch the tone of indignancy? And he replied, because now you're going to get to know yourself in a new way, closer to who you really are. I remember him looking at me directly. What happens to your dedication when you're not getting emotionally rewarded for it? You didn't forget about the struggle, did you? What do you think we've been talking about in class? Haven't there been enough references to this? Of course, he was absolutely right. Once we pass through the honeymoon stage of spirituality, the period of first fervor, our spiritual practice becomes routine, and we start to experience the ordinary ups and downs of life. 
If we happen to be in the monastery, we have been told repeatedly that this would happen. But our disappointment shows that we really didn't understand. We were secretly hoping that we would be the exception to the rule. Usually the transition happens gradually. Gently but inexorably, our experience forces us to confront the fact that our new rule of life is no longer emotionally gratifying it, at least not like it used to be. You mean to tell me that all this is necessary, groaned the seeker? This is the real beginning of spiritual life, when hard work starts. In other words, this is the day that you wake up and say that you married the wrong person, the day that the marriage truly begins. This is the day that the spiritual life truly begins, when the hard work starts. Father continued, up to now everything's been preliminary and delightful. Forget that now. Now there's no candy, no unusual emotional gratification. So what do you do? Did you really mean what you said when you were received into the community, that the search for God is what you really desire? Now is the time to recall the enthusiasm of our first fervor, the determination to offer ourselves unreservedly as a living sacrifice, in other words, to glorify God, and at the same time to let go of the craving for emotional consolation. Father shrugged his shoulders. If it comes, okay. If it doesn't come, okay. Monastic tradition teaches that this breaking free from emotional dependency doesn't happen all at once, but goes on throughout our lives. It entails a spiritual battle on many fronts, which is supremely challenging whether we are veteran or neophyte. What does it mean when spirituality no longer feels good? What do you do? See, what do we do the day we wake up and we think we've married the wrong person? Do we just bolt and leave? Find another one for whom we can feel that again? Do we dig in and push through the landing, push through the burying, push through to the resurfacing? What do we do? And why is this so difficult for us? It's difficult because we identify with our emotions. We identify with the thoughts we think. We think that's who we are. We think what we feel is what we are. What we think is what we are. But it's not. It's not who we are. And as long as we think that, we can't know God. We can't know the Haye de Alma. We can't have the kind of life that is constantly changing. Because God lives in the moment and he has to be free to move in the moment. The thoughts and emotions take us out of the moment. They shelve us off. And they put things in stone. This is who I am. This is what I always feel. And so we're not open to the changing face of God. Don't forget Frank's disco ball. Always changing, always showing a different reflection. You know, If we're not open to that because we are completely identified, covered over by our thoughts and feelings, then we can't get out to that. To Yadah God, to know him in this experiential way, to live him, so that we actually know his nature, is to begin to know ourselves. But if we think we already do, then God is going to look like us. Does that make sense? We are not going to look any further. When the emotions of the first fervor wane, we panic, and we pray for revival. We want to feel those things again. But are we looking just for revived emotions? Or are we really looking for God's presence in our own presence in these moments. 
And how do we know the difference between desolation, just that landing period, which is absolutely necessary to strip away all of the emotions and get down to what is really real, and the temptation where we've just run off the rails and we have let the distractions of life pull us off. How do we know? It's a critical distinction to make if we're going to be moving through in spiritual growth. How do we know the difference? You know, my office window at home, it looks out over the street, and so I can see the houses on the other side. And so when I'm working, I sometimes get distracted, and I look out the window. And there's a house right across the street and one up that has one of those basketball hoops. Have you seen those freestanding with the big weights on the bottom? And it's got the backboard and the hoop. And this one has a little thing that, that hangs down so when the ball goes through it, it comes back to you instead of going every which way. And so it's, it's a really nice one. It's been there for years. And when I first started becoming aware of it, you know, I'd hear the bouncing of the basketball and I'd look out and I saw this little boy, he was probably 10 or 11 years old, and he was shooting hoops and playing around. And sometimes his little brother would come out and you know, do some things and go back in. But I started becoming more and more alert to him because day after day I'd hear that ball and I'd look out and I'd see that kid shooting baskets, practicing dribbling, you know, starting to go around the back and through the legs. And I'd see the sureness of, of his hand on the ball starting to develop. Sometimes there was a parked car right there and he had to work around that, you know, and he'd practice layups and he'd shoot from, look like a free throw length and then he'd get on the other side of the car and shoot from the top of the key and he was always, we're on a hill, so a lot of times the ball would get away from him and he's running down the hill trying to get the ball and coming back, you know. But I just watched this kid improving week after week, month after month, getting better. And earlier this year, a sign went up, one of those kind of realtor sort of signs on the lawn, and it said Tesoro Basketball. So he's now on the Tesoro Basketball team. You know, He's probably a freshman now, but he's a lot, you know, he looks a lot older to me. Yesterday as I was prepping, I heard the basketball bouncing. I looked out and there he was. And this time he was in his Tesoro uniform. So I don't know if he was warming up before he went to a game or he came from a game. This was mid-afternoon-ish or so. But he's out there playing and shooting. And I just looked at how good he is. He's really good. He was shooting about 80% from what looked like a top-of-the-key distance. And he was doing layups and doing all this stuff. And that ball never got away from him once, you know. But he's only looked, he only looks like he's about 5'8". So he's not going to be a pro. There's not a career in this for him. But he's on the team, you know. And day after day, he has come back to shoot those hoops and gotten better and better at doing it until the ball just looks now that it's part of him as he moves, as he spins, as he moves this ball around. I only remember seeing his father come out once and shoot baskets with him. His little brother from time to time who'd shoot for a couple of minutes and go back in. But there he was, day after day, shooting and shooting. He doesn't know that I'm watching him. He certainly doesn't know that I'm talking about him right now. I know how he'd feel about that. That'd be interesting. But this kid would go out and shoot in the dark. I'm sure he has. He just loves to play. It's so obvious. I've watched him for three years now do this. You know, that's Intimacy. That is showing up day after day. What are you going to do when the spiritual life or any relationship is no longer emotionally gratifying? What do you do when no one is looking? What do you do when there's no reward for it? 
See, in the end, we're going to be defined by the things that we do that nobody finds out about. Those are the things that define us. Those are the things that tell us who we really are. This is why the marriage starts when the first fervor ends. This is why the spiritual journey starts when the first fervor ends. Because what you do that seems to be unrewarded, what you do in the dark, in your prayer closet where nobody sees you except your Father in heaven who is unseen, is defining the quality of your relationship. What is the difference between that desolation phase, that landing phase, and the burying or the temptation? It's whether you're still doing what you set out to do. Are you still showing up and shooting the baskets and practicing your layups? Or have you gone off the rails? There is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with your intimacy if you don't feel it ecstatically anymore as long as you're still showing up to the relationship, as long as you didn't divorce your partner and find another one, you stayed in the relationship. It's your action that grounds you. It's your action that takes you where you want to go. Intimacy is really the freedom to trust, ultimately. Because of this long, close connection, that's what it is. Intimacy requires willingness to keep showing up, but showing up with a vulnerability that allows us to truly experience the other person. If we show up with our shields on, if we show up in a defensive posture, we're not going to have any experience of closeness or intimacy. To show up, to show up vulnerably. And in order to do that, it requires the awareness to be present, which takes us all the way back to the contemplative way. The contemplative way allows us to practice presence, to show up in our moments, fully present, so that we can be vulnerable, we can let people see who we really are, so we can experience the connection that will finally take us to trust. Trust is the end game. Trust is where we're trying to go. Trust is the proof of intimacy. Not emotion. Emotion is not a proof of intimacy. Trust is the proof of intimacy. At the end of his book, Ruthless Trust, Brendan Manning says, he believes that it's much more important for Jesus to hear us say, I trust you, rather than I love you. That's a huge statement. Why? Because I trust you is the evidence of all of the encounters, all of the experience over a lifetime that brought you to the place that you absolutely trust that person And if you trust them, that means your fear has dissipated. That means that the anxiety has leached away so that you can absolutely know that you know that that person has your back. That's trust. That's where we're trying to go. And when we know God to that extent that we can say, I trust you, then our life has completely changed. We will make choices differently. We will have different attitudes when we move into the realm of trust. This is it. The more vulnerable we are, the more intimate we become. And the more intimate we become, the more vulnerable we can remain. Because without vulnerability, without that childlike quality that Jesus calls kingdom, we can't do any of this. We can't. I wanted to read you one last thing. 
It is so hard to get some of these things across. It's so hard for us to understand what intimacy is like because we tie it to so many things. But in, in the interest of just trying to move through this, I wrote a journal entry a few years ago that as I reread it, it just seemed to be, one of, to me, one of the most intimate moments that I've had. And this was just alone at 5 a.m. 5 a.m. Haven't seen 5 a.m. in a while. Hours have shifted so that I routinely see light and dark, but not so much the time in between. Remembering how much I love this hour of transition, I tell myself I need to come here more often, but no promise really intended. Cool air, not a breeze, pours over the sill of the open window like water over the edge of an overflowing bathtub, streaming past bare feet. Light begins silhouetting hilltop trees, and I can actually feel the planet underneath turning toward the heat of another August day. Every time I look, sky is brighter, hillside details and colors emerging. One distant bird sounds off, now dozens, some right outside the window, and I realize swallows have built a nest under the eaves. When did that happen? How did I miss the process? Any moment, sun disk will crest the hill, bringing the heat and ending this breath-held moment between before. Light enough now to see the little round sticker on my right forearm. It's still there. Survived the night. Our five-year-old son, insisting before bed that I close my eyes and hold out my arm like this so he could give me a present. Looks like an orange with a smiling face. Or maybe the smiling son about to make its appearance. Little things. Little details of childhood. The brightening house is full of them. I usually find myself trying to clean them up, but yesterday my wife told me she brought him school school supplies for kindergarten that starts in just a few days. School supplies, a rite of passage of sorts. Not so subtle reminder that his time of benevolent captivity in our home is spinning out like a planet towards sunrise. Hmm. Time-lapse photography, light and shadow visibly moving across carpet and walls, life overflowing past bare feet. Another hot August day. How many Augusts? How many days? How many left? This day's details illuminate with the increasing light what must be done, who must be seen, what will be left over to do another day. All these details, all this activity. Does any of it mean anything? Is there any significance here or just movement? But there's a sticker on my arm. Proof of life like a watch in the sand of a deserted beach, stating that someone was here, that intelligent life once passed this way. An impossibly orange face reminds me that somewhere in this silent house, my son is sleeping, blissfully unaware of the coming heat. All this activity, all these details, mean at least that much to him, though he knows nothing of it. Maybe his unawareness of the gift makes it even more significant to those of us who are, who find themselves holding a long breath at 5 a.m., sitting quietly in the betweenness and beforeness of another hot August day. This entry to me is just about bare belonging. Just belonging. Just sitting in a place that is truly my home, with my family around me, and feeling because of all the years of togetherness, accumulation of just knowing that I belong somewhere. I get to come home 
somewhere. I think ultimately, intimacy is the experience that a relationship can withstand even our own imperfections. Even the things that we do wrong, we will still be ultimately forgiven and brought back. That the landings and the desolations that we cause in a relationship will still be worked through because there's enough there to do so. That intimacy, that kind of intimacy, only comes with a repeated presence to a person, to a sunrise, or to a basketball hoop. Let's pray. Father, first thank you for the intimacy that you practice with us, always showing up, always perfectly present, vulnerable to us because you're open to us. Help us to reflect that more and more. Help us to glorify that nature, that essence of yours more and more in our lives. We want to imitate that. We want to become that. We want to move through the ups and downs and the highs and the lows and all the details with an increasing sureness that we won't drop the ball, that we can negotiate these things and we can know that we know that we know that we are still connected to you regardless of what we feel or regardless of the circumstances around us. That's the trust that we need to live our lives in complete freedom, to live in kingdom with you. Thank you, Father, for giving us everything we need. Thank you for always being there. And never let us forget we can only love or do any of this because you loved and did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.